Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Well, my name is Jimmy. I am on the preaching team, and that's it. We're going to jump into it because I got a lot this morning. Um, we This morning's going to be a little different, I want to warn you, uh, up front. At the end, we're going to have uh, a time to publicly respond, um, and that's not going to be a forced thing or anything like that, but um, we're going to give people an opportunity if they feel like some sort of public response is necessary to do so. So, with that being said, with uh, a bit of a story for you guys. So, Reynold Messner, uh, I have his picture up here, might not be a common name to, uh, known to many in this room, but in the world of climbing uh, and adventures, nature adventures, Reynold Messner is the goat. Messner, it is said, was raised by the mountains. He grew up in South Tyrol, uh, which is a German-speaking area, where is that, um, between Austria and Italy. Uh, it kind of looks like this. Uh, and Mesner climbed his first 1,000-meter mountain by the age of five, um, which is pretty wild. Yeah, I know. You guys were, like, running around the room following your two-year-old. Uh, imagine having to go with a five-year-old up a mountain. Um, his mother would read him stories of the British alpine climbers before bed every night. So Mesner was raised by the mountains. So it is no surprise that Mesner, when he got older, became an adventurous and a mountaineer going from major feet to major feet. He, in fact, pushed himself so hard to do the impossible that he ended up doing what doctors thought was physiologically impossible. He and his climbing partner here, Peter Habler, were the first people in the world to reach the summit of Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen. This was in May of 1978. This was the magnus opus of the climbing world, right? This is the bulls in the 90s, right? The Mona Lisa, the ultimate achievement of Mesner's career and the one that would solidify him as the face of the climbing world, even today. So you, you hear all this and it's like, man, this man did everything. What was his response to this? What was his response to the greatest achievement in climbing history up to this point? Well, in May of 1979, a year after his feat, Mesner said that when he and Habler stood atop the Everest, took in the entire view he felt nothing. He got to the top, and he felt nothing. He then, a year later, climbed Everest alone, another incredible feat. And he's, uh, this, not this one yet, but he said this. He said, I realize it is over, this period. I cannot go higher, and alone is alone. My possibilities to evolve are finished, Right? pretty dark. <laughs> you see, instead of being able to reflect on his achievement, instead of being able to garner worth from something others had never done, instead of being able to find contentment, Mesner found emptiness and loneliness. What he thought would bring joy and a great sense of purpose actually brought the question, is this it? Right? GQ, in their write-up on Mesner, said it this way, and this is the quote, at the center of his sadness seemed to be a paradox. To be alone on a high mountain with only what he could carry was at once the purest desolation of his mountaineering, philosophy and the ultimate rebuke for his mode of living. As a climber, his aloneness was applauded. As a person, his aloneness 
left him catastrophically isolated. You see, what Mesner thought would bring worth to him, right? If only he could get the top, to the top of Everest with Habler. And then, if only he could get to the top of Everest alone. It ended up bringing him to a point of believing that it didn't matter much. He felt nothing. That this thing from which he thought he would find satisfaction ended up leaving him wanting. Um, the Avid brothers, by the way, I'm going to quote, until people tell me to stop, I'm going to quote like semi-obscure bands. Um, so apologies. The Avid brothers, my favorite band, um, sing about this phenomenon. So they have a song called Down with the Shine, and they sing this. There's nothing good because nothing lasts. And all that comes here, it comes here to pass. I would voice my pain, but the change wouldn't last. All that comes, it comes here to pass. Uh, and it's this, it's, it's a really dark line, but it's actually in this sort of like, you sing this song in the pub with your friends sort of tune. It's like rocking, you know, those sort of tunes. Um, look at what they follow up with this sort of realization that everything comes to pass and nothing is good. Down with the shine, the perfect shine that poisons the well and ruins my mind. I might start singing. I get took for a ride every time. Down with the glistening shine. Now, shine here is moonshine. So, what is their response to realizing that nothing is really worth it? Let's get drunk, right? And this is not a new idea. For centuries, thinkers and non-thinkers alike have been searching for satisfaction, right? And I suspect that those of us in this room are no different this morning, right? Once I'm on my own, I'll be happy. Once I finish this class, once I graduate from college, once I get married, once I get a job, once I have kids, once the Cubs win the World Series, right? Like, satisfaction is always around the corner. C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis puts it this way in Mere Christianity. Most people, if they had really learned, this is a long quote, so you can sit back. Most people, if they really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise, right? I'm going to keep reading it. I don't have the full quote up here. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And listen, this is important. I am not now speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent. And chemistry, Tayun, may be a very interesting subject. <laughs> but, just, but something has evaded us, right? This morning, I want to explore that idea with you. The something has evaded us. But first, let me pray. Lord, uh, I just pray for this morning that um, our hearts are open, uh, that we have eyes to see, ears to hear what you have for us, this Lord, this morning. So, uh, let us remember your words, not mine, uh, your glory, not mine, and help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Here's his name I pray. Amen. Okay, now that's a longer introduction, and I didn't even really tell you where we're at uh, in our series. So you may have forgotten, but we are in this Lenten series in a series called Hunger and Thirst, right? And this is based on the verse that Tiana preached last week, Matthew 5, 6 which says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
Why are we doing this during Lent? Well, Lent is a season, 40 days, right, leading up to uh, Easter that is often marked or remembered by fasting. Fasting in the Christian tradition is a reminder of our spiritual hunger that exists, right? We, f- we physically hunger, we physically fast in order to remind us that being spiritually hunger for more of God's goodness is a good thing, a.k.a. we hunger and thirst for righteousness knowing that we be- will be filled. This morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3, which Hilda read for me, um, for the same reason. So let's go ahead and jump into that text. Now, we are jumping into the middle of a really, really long conversation uh, between God and his people via Moses. I'm sure many of you know this, but the Israelites here are coming up on a 40-year trek um, in the middle of the desert, right? They were just uh, released from slavery, not just, I guess it was 40 years ago, but they were released from slavery in Egypt by Moses, right? And then they go for 40 years through the desert in search of the promised land. Now, we read the whole thing, but the important piece here is verse 3 this morning, which says, God humbled the Israelites, causing them to hunger and then feeding them with manna, which neither they nor their ancestors had known. Okay, so let's stop there. What's going on here? Well, Moses is reminding his people of something that began happening 39 years, 10 months, and 15 days prior to this day, right? Exodus 16 tells our story. It says that on the 15th day of the second month after the Israelites were released from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites were understandably sick of wandering in the wilderness, right? So let's look at Exodus 16. Verse 2 says this. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we want." but you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's pretty dramatic, but it's understandable, right? They have already, and this is only month two, right? Of 40 years times 12. I said I'm not going to do math on stage, so I won't, but you get the point, right? This is, this is, this is stark, but just think about it. Like, they were like, yeah, we're going to get released from the Egyptians, and we're going to the promised land, the land that flows with milk and honey, right? And then... Two months later, they're in the middle of a desert starving, right? I would respond far worse than I think the Israelites here would, right? And so what does God do? What does he do in response to his people? He hears them. God goes on to explain that every morning when the Israelites wake up, they will go out and like dew on the ground, manna from heaven will spread out for them to take, right? And they would take just enough for that day so that they could have a physical experience of their reliance on God. In fact, some would try to take more than their share of that day, and then by next morning, it would already be filled with maggots and stinking, right? Now, manna here is a very, very sweet bread. I like to think, I don't know if you guys, you guys have probably noticed this, but sometimes for communion, we have Hawaiian rolls. I think think that's Chris is doing. I, I like to think of like Hawaiian rolls or cinnamon rolls, right? Very, very sweet bread. And, and here's also something important symbolically. Bread at this time, much like meat for us, was the center of their meal, right? And so bread was often used as a metaphor for life. Bread at the center of the meal represents vitality. Same ever. Um, and the sweetness of this bread, while real, right, 
is also symbolically pointed to the sweetness of God's grace that freed them from slavery and provided the bread in the first place, right? And it says that the Israelites then ate this manna every single day. They gathered it and ate it every single day for 40 years. So manna here, it's it's a physical thing, right? It actually happened, but it also was both uh, sustenance and sweetness is what it um, referenced, right? Sustenance and sweetness. And so our passage today for Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3 is God revealing at the end of these 40 years where the Israelites were provided manna every single day that the manna was a lesson for the Israelites to learn. Going back to our passage again, it says, Moses says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, God knew that if the Israelites were provided all their hearts ever wanted, an abundance of food, comfort, drink, leisure, they would forget about their spiritual hunger, right? That they might be alive, but they would not be living as God intended, immersed in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They would be physically alive, but spiritually dead, which is far worse than physical death. And if I'm being honest, church, I'm worried about the American church, which includes us and myself, right? I'm worried that we live in an age where we, where such extreme levels of material comfort can be achieved for some of us, that we suppress our true spiritual needs through material means of meeting what we believe to be our needs. Let me say that again. I think we suppress our spiritual hunger, right, by being physically full. You see, the manna was not the end itself, but it was a signal to the end, the word of God. Yet the many Israelites did, and many of us do, treat the the manna as the end itself, right? We often confuse God's gifts with God himself. And so the summit of a mountain previously unknown to humankind is an objectively beautiful thing, right? And yet, why does the summit of the mountain exist except to point to the majesty of God? A good, loving marriage is a good thing, right? And yet, why does the marriage relationship exist except to highlight the God who promises and keeps those promises and the God who loves? Why do we always believe the manna can fully replace the word of God Man does, man does not live on bread alone, right? And, and I want to highlight this real quick. We often don't replace God with like objectively bad things, right? I'm like not, we, we do sometimes, like don't hear me out, but we're seeking that, those sort of good things to replace God, right? And so I don't want you to hear me though saying like, marriage is a bad thing, you should leave it. Or nature is a bad thing, you shouldn't pursue it. A good job is a bad, that's not what I'm saying, right? I'm not saying those things are bad. Those things are good, but they are not ultimate, right? And that's when they become, a, when they become God themselves, that's when we have our problems, right? Okay, so from here, I want to take it a little bit of a different direction than what maybe is typical. Typically, so we just read, man does not live uh, on bread alone, but on the word of God, right? And so maybe we'll talk about how good the Bible is, how good getting into the Word of God is. And it is. Like, I love the Bible. I love the Word of God. However, I think we often think about reading the Bible as like this, this task that we have to do in order to be a good Christian, a sort of grit and bear your teeth thing, instead of recognizing the grace we have in having the Word. And so this morning, I want to show you why God's Word 
would be compared to manna here as opposed to just tell you that you should read it, right? So we're going to end by saying, like, why is this, why is the Bible nourishing? Why is the word of God sustenance and sweetness? And I'll feel like that's not where we're going here for a minute, but I promise you it is, okay? So what we're going to do, we're going to jump into the New Testament now to a passage that also references the manna story. It's John 7. Now, many of you know part of this story. Jesus had just, and maybe you know it all, but Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with five loaves, and two bre- uh, five loaves of bread and two fish, right? It's a similar storyline to what we had actually been reading. God feeding the people via bread. Anyways, Jesus feeds the 5,000, then takes a, cris- takes a trip across the lake. And the crowd he fed found him there. So let's pick up in verse 25 of John 7. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. But do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. See, Jesus is telling the people, he says, you follow me not because you want me, right? Not because you you necessarily want to know me, but you follow me because you're full, because of what I did for you, right? Once again, I think these are familiar words to what we had just read. Let's continue. Verse 28, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? See, uh, sorry, I'm stumbling a little. Jesus just said, work for food that does not spoil, right? So now they're asking, what work must we do, Jesus? What kind of work is this? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you this bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, Jesus just told them to go work for the imperishable bread, imperishable bread, not the maggot-filled bread, right? Then the Jesus go, then the people go, what do we, what work do we do for this bread? Jesus said, believe in the one he has sent, right? Referring to himself. And I think the people understood he meant himself here because then they say back, how do we know we can trust you? What sign will you do that we can trust you, right? perform a sign like Moses did, providing for the people with manna in the wilderness. And remember, Jesus had literally just provided bread for them, right? Like, that's kind of wild. They're like, hey, Jesus, can you do a sign for us? And Jesus is like, what, like 10 minutes ago? Yeah. Um, but that, that's besides the point. And, and they also attribute the bread to Moses, which is a really interesting thing here, right? Um, so Jesus adds This line to the end that really captures the attention of the crowds. Look at this. It says, The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, there's a bread that meets this hunger that they are feeling, this desire for satisfaction, right? That there's other, that other types of bread cannot meet. And look at how the people respond to it. Look at what they say. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They know it's the good stuff, right? Now, in our story in Exodus, remember how I said God heard his people and met their need? I think what Jesus is about to say does the exact same thing. Jesus declared, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hungry, never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. See, Jesus does not say, I give the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life, right? How? Like, why, why is Jesus the bread of life? Why doesn't he just give it? Well, remember we said bread was often a symbol or a metaphor for life in their time, right? And I want you to think about this. Every time we eat, outside of a few minerals and some salt, something dies, right? You think about the plants that we eat. They die in order that we might consume them. Uh, If you eat animals, they die in order that we might consume them. Even a loaf of bread, it has things that were alive at one point, right? But just think metaphorically, a loaf of bread. What do we have to do to consume that bread? We break it, right? And we consume it. And Jesus, he knew the state of our world. He knew that the wages of sin was death, that we were separated from God as a result of a sinful and broken world, and we needed to be rescued. Jesus does not just give the bread of life. He was the bread of life because by his death, we live, right? By his being broken, we are made whole. And he did not just die. He was not only broken, but he got back up and defeated death, right? Esau McCauley, in his book on Lent, says there is nothing natural at all about death. It is an alien intrusion into the good world God created. It is an enemy to be defeated, right? In church, it was defeated on a cross, on a hill, next to two thieves. How does this all tie together? I just went from dissatisfaction at the top of Mount Everest, right, to manna in the wilderness, to the bread of life. If you take away anything this morning, I want you to take away this. The manna of this world makes promises it cannot keep, and it will never satisfy you. Our satisfaction can only be found in the bread of life. Our satisfaction can only be found in the bread of life, right? This is a lesson I need to learn over and over and over again. I have gone from thinking a romantic relationship would bring me ultimate satisfaction to thinking it'd be found at meaningful ministry work, right? To even putting my stock into my own personality, regardless of how bad it is. Maybe if I'm liked by everyone, I will feel that satisfaction, right? Each and every one of our manas are going to look different. Maybe for you, it's how good of a Christian you are. Maybe it's how unique of a Christian you are, right? Maybe it's your work, your wanderlust lifestyle, all good things, but none of them are ultimate and none of them satisfy. So what do we do? How do we place our hope in the satisfaction of Jesus? How do we feast on the bread of life that does not spoil but gives life to the world? I've got two things I want to challenge you to this morning that I think begin to usher us toward that way of living. And the first way is one I said I would come back to, and it's spending time in the Word, right? live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. When I was a new Christian in high school, it was my sophomore year, um, I was challenged in a year to read the New Testament. And you know what? I did it. Had no, had no clue what I was reading, but it was fun. I did it. So then they were like, that's awesome. Next year, this next year, let's read the Old Testament. And then I got to Leviticus and I didn't do it, right? <laughs> I like tried to go in order. It's like, Gen- for those of you who don't know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, book three of uh, 44, and I stopped. It's like, nope, I'm out, right? Now, part of it is like, I don't think you should read the Bible like 
front to end, just so you know. Like, that's not a necessarily a good way to read it. But the other reality is, like, I was reading law after law after law, and I did not know the arc of God's salvation, right? I did not understand that every single chapter of every single book in the Bible pointed to Jesus, right? I did not understand that in the law there was grace, right? That it was pointing to the fact that we were going to fall short and that Jesus was going to come one day, right? I didn't understand that. But by the time I began to understand that, I couldn't get enough of his word. I got to see the God of the universe in a book. I get to see his personality, his love for me, all of this in this book. That's just a beautiful thing. Like what a grace we get to actually know the character of God, right? Something we don't necessarily get, like, I don't know if we deserve being pulled back the curtain of, like, how, what God is like, and yet he loves us, right? If you have some time this afternoon, I would suggest reading Isaiah 55, particularly, like, I think it's the last three verses. I should have looked this up. Um, it's a passage about the word not returning void. And in there, God promises that there's an investment in the word that will produce joy in you. And I have felt this deeply in my life. Not all the time. Sometimes the word actually causes me great stress, right? Um, But in community that is willing to help correct my view of particular passages, I have walked away more and more in love with Jesus. Okay, so that's one way to feast on the bread of life is through the word. The second way I want to end with this morning is a bit less obvious. It's what I alluded to before, but I am convinced that some of the vibrancy in our churches is missing because of a lack of this practice. And that practice these are going to feel real uncomfortable here in a second, is confession and repentance. Confession is an agreement with God that sin is sin, right? Particularly the sin in our own lives. And if confession is a recognition of the sin in our lives, repentance is turning away from that sin and toward godly living. Say you're standing on a platform for the L. Um, That's the train for the out-of-towners. One train is toward sin, right? And the other is toward God. They are inherently going in opposite directions. Confession is recognition that you're on the wrong train. Repentance is getting on the other one, right? While this practice can be done in private, should be done in private with God, or in the presence or person uh, of one or two other people, I believe the public practice of confession can be a really powerful thing. I think confession naturally leads to a revival in our hearts toward God because you are bringing to light the ways in which you have not been in the light. God is in the light, and so confection confession brings us back in proximity to God, right? But let me be clear on this, because for Christians, uh, sin never changes our relationship with God. He's still our Father. Jesus died. You, you, some of you need to hear this. Jesus died for past, present, and future sins in your life, right? Sin does not impact your relationship with God. Sin does impact your fellowship with God, namely because where there is sin, God is not. And so you can't keep sinning and get closer to God in the same moment, right? So confession allows us to recognize that and re-enter proximity with God instead of running from him in our shame. All that to say, I want to take a risk this morning with you. Um, I'm going to pray right now. And as I pray, uh, musicians are going to come up and play some instrumental music. And during that music, I'm going to leave these three questions on the screen. What areas of your life have you sought for ultimate satisfaction in place of God? What in your life has been manna that has attempted to replace the bread of life? 
And what promises from this world have you believed? Now, these are all three the same question. Um, so don't feel like you have to think about like all three. It's just different wording for the same question just based on how you're built, right? Like what, what resonates with you a little bit more? And if you're sitting there and it's really, really hard to think about something that maybe is in your life, I want to ask you to pray a really scary prayer. God, reveal my sin. It's a prayer that he always answers, so good luck. Um, so think about these questions while the music plays, and if you want to public con- publicly confess any of your answers to me, or not to me, sorry, if you want to, what we're going to do, we're going to do a, a, a session of public confession, right? Um, that's going to be here on stage. If you have any interest in doing that and bringing things to the light uh, in community that loves you uh, and is going to point you to the grace of God, I'm going to stand over here. Uh, you can come talk to me about what it is, uh, and we'll just talk through like what that might look like for you, okay? Uh, if we, I, I want to say, like, if we have nobody that wants to do that, that's fine. This time is not a failure. We have begun the process of confession and repentance with each other, right? And I'm not going to force anyone to come up here. Like, I don't have anyone planted. I promise. I know some folks do that. I don't. Um, so this might feel a little uncomfortable here in a minute if I ask if there is anyone. If there isn't, that's okay, right? We're beginning the process together. But if you feel the urge, this inkling from the Spirit, that a public confession is the way to go, I urge you toward the courage that it takes to do that, right? Let us live in the light, beloved. Let us no longer live in the darkness. Uh, one more thing, a mentor in my life uh, used to do this really important thing to me. He said, if this sin in your life played out for the rest of your life, um, what would that look like? Who would that hurt, right? That's a really effective way for me to sort of nip things in the bud in the beginning and confess things early. It's like, man, if this anger while driving is not taken care of, like, what could that do to my marriage with Jamie, right? What could that do to my parenting of Alex and things like that? Um, I bring this up because I didn't tell you the whole story of Mesner. Um, so in 1978, he climbed Everest. Eight years before, he went on a trek with his brother. Uh, his brother, Gunther and him were both um, on this team that was hiking this mountain. And they decided to hike this, this uh, face of this mountain that no one had ever done. He and his brother did it without telling the rest of the team. Well, two days later, Reynold came down and Gunther did not. Uh, Gunther, on that trek, died at the top of the mountain. And because they had not told the rest of the team, the rest of the team was angry with them, right? And what they said, I have the words here, they said they sacrificed his brother in the altar of ambition. And Lord, when we think of, guys, when we think about like the way our sin can play out without confessing, I, I just don't want us to get to the point where we sacrifice something at the altar, right? Instead of bringing it to the light and living in light of God. So let me pray and we're going to go into a, a time of silence. God, yeah, I just thank you for this, uh, for your word. I thank you that you have just laid out so perfectly, so clearly that Jesus is the bread of life. And so Lord, I just pray that in this moment of reflection, uh, that maybe we can be made aware of some areas in our life uh, that are not aligned with you. And so Lord, help us in, in truth and in grace align our lives with you. In your son's name I pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.